rather than try to provide the same kind of paratransit with the same infrastructure and the, the same regulatory constraints, deliver service to those same customers through a different model. The capabilities of the technology are different, customer expectations are different, customer travel patterns are different, provider options are different. This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged News and Views this week. We've got a packed show for you today. Christian Kent is our newsmaker interview. He'll be talking about some of the latest trends in transit when it comes to paratransit and recruiting and staffing. It's a great interview. We've also are continuing our bi-weekly look into leadership development. And this week we have one of the nation's leading experts in leadership development, Sean Moon. He's a number one best-selling author, Wall Street Journal best-selling author, been featured in Forbes and Inc. magazine, has authored several books, including Leading Loyalty, Cracking the Code to Customer Devotion. I'm excited that not only is he our interview today on this podcast for leadership development, but he's also coming down in person to be at the Think Transit Executive Summit. We'll tell you all about that in just a moment. But a great pack show today, along with Alea Carey's look at marketing and our news headlines coming your way right now. Some Bay Area transit agencies in the San Francisco Bay Area here in the U.S., such as BART and Golden Gate Transit, are considering fare increases amid looming fiscal cliffs and rising costs to operate buses, trains, and ferries in the region. We're also seeing this across North America. At BART, the Regional Rail System's Board of Directors is mulling whether to pass a budget this spring that would include an 11% fare hike over two years. Earlier this month, the SFMTA board supported the agency resuming Muni's fare increases for inflation when it adopts a new two-year budget cycle next year. And at Golden Gate Transit, which runs bus and ferry service in the North Bay and San Francisco area, officials are proposing fare hikes to bus and ferry services over five years. We're seeing this as an anomaly across the country where competing ideas are working their way out. Some transit agencies are saying we want to stick with zero fares or lower fares that we adopted during the pandemic, while other agencies are saying, wait a minute, we got steep fiscal cliffs. We're running out of the federal funds we had uh, as part of the um, pandemic area relief and inflation and labor costs are going up. And some of them, like the ones I just mentioned and others, are looking to the fare box to bring in more revenue. So it's a back and forth discussion. And, you know, I thought about that as I was putting together the agenda for this year's Think Transit Executive Summit. As most of you know, Think Transit is a uh, what started as a user's conference for Trapeze and Vontis has now turned into a real full-blown transportation conference with around 500 attendees. This year is going to be phenomenal. It's coming your way uh, on April 3rd and, and 4th. And fifth, the whole uh, Think Transit conference is actually starts on Sunday, the second, with an opening reception. And then we uh, dig in to the meat of the agenda on the third and fourth and fifth. During that three-day conference, I'm hosting and curating a special one-and-a-half-day session just for public transportation executives. Uh, it is a conference which will be offering multiple panels and presentations to discuss the most relevant topics that are facing our industry today. Let me take you through what the agenda looks like. 
On the first day, we'll be looking at microtransit and paratransit hot trends. We'll have Greg Ellsberg there from DART, one of the nation's leading experts when it comes to uh, innovating on mobility and microtransit. John Donlan, the CEO of User, will be there. Josh Wolf, Director of Mobility at my old alma mater, Maryland Transit Administration, who's come up with a great new reimbursement methodology for contractors that I want him to share. And Matthew Widener uh, with King County Metro in Seattle is going to be talking about how they are looking to potentially merge their on-demand microtransit and their paratransit, like they've done at KCATA. Then we're going to have an industry challenges panel with Bakara Malden, Deputy CEO of Memphis Area Transit Authority, kicking it off discussing how they are increasing their ridership. Dave Deck will be there. He's the executive director of TriRail in Southern Florida. They recently announced a 30% increase in ridership they've had recently on commuter rail, which, as you know, ridership has been decimated on commuter rail services. So I want him to share how they're doing it. Another up-and-coming trend in transit is the use of hydrogen fuel. Electric buses are leading the way, but hydrogen fuel as a zero-emission fuel is coming up strong, and Kurt Conrad, who's CEO of Stark Area Regional Transit Authority in Ohio, uh, is one of the nation's leaders on hydrogen fuel and is going to explain to us exactly how it works. Nick Oldham will also be there from the hometown team at WeGo Transit in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. He's their chief safety and security officer. He's been a guest on our Transit Unplugged TV show this last year. He's going to talk about how public transit agencies are addressing the need for security in transit. Then we'll have a new CEO panel. This was an idea of Charlotte Shaw, CEO of Birmingham Jefferson County Transit, a friend of mine. She called me one day a couple months ago and said, Paul, there's so many brand new CEOs with under a year's experience. I think we should put together a panel of them. And I said, that's a great idea. Let's do it at Think Transit at the Executive Summit. So she's going to moderate a panel, which will include Dave Deck, as well as Frank White, CEO of KCATA, Jameson Auten, a good friend who now heads up Lane Transit District, Michelle Allison the new CEO at King County Metro in Seattle, who replaced Terry White, Richard Andreski, the new president and CEO of Trinity Metro in Fort Worth, and Tiffany Homler-Hawkins, who just took over as CEO of Lynx in Orlando, Florida, and maybe one or two other surprise guests are all going to be on a panel. And I've asked them to share, you know, kind of their intimate feelings about taking a new job like this. If you're, if you are a transit executive, uh, at a major tra- at any transit agency in North America, this is going to be a panel you can't miss. You want to hear these folks talk to you about what it's like, what surprised them, what uh, what challenges are they facing in their first year, and then ta-da! Here's the debate I was talking about. You know, we never have debates anymore. Uh, people get so hot and heavy over things. Well, I've asked two of my friends to come and put on a debate on fair and zero fair. Uh, it, this is the hot topic du jour, right? We were talking about. I mean, every week you hear a transit agency going one way or the other with this. So I've asked Kate Matisse, my friend who's the executive director of the Northern Virginia Transportation Commission that helps work with transit agencies on both sides of this debate to moderate it for me. And Noah Berger, my pal who's head of Merrimack Valley Regional Transit Authority in Massachusetts, uh, is going to present the zero fare side. He believes it's helped him increase ridership and has done a lot of other good things for their agency. And then I've asked, I prevailed upon Rich Sampson, who's executive director of the Southwest Transit Association to come and present the other side. Rich is a trained debater. He can see both sides of the issue, but I've asked him to present the side that we talked about just a minute ago, how some transit agencies are heading to a fiscal cliff and fares are one of the only ways they can see that they can you know, make up their costs, pay the bills. 
So we're going to have both sides presented. And then you, as a participant in the audience, will be able to participate in the discussion. I think it's going to be fascinating. A couple other really good presentations. As I mentioned, Sean Moon will be there. He's the best-selling author on leadership. He's going to do a presentation uh, at that conference for me. I really appreciate him coming down there and doing that. He's a, you know, a well-known speaker and, and uh, author. And so he's coming down to present again on this whole theme of how we can improve leadership and build customer loyalty in our agencies and for our transit station services. Speaking of that, on day two, remember the executive summit is a day and a half event. On day two, we're going to kick it off with a vision of the future of public transportation. And I've invited four of the most visionary people I know of in public transportation. John Rassant, who is the founder and CEO of Comotion. They have events, as you know, all over the place, but they're well known for the ones in LA and Miami, as well as a new one they've done in Vancouver. He's also the founder and chairman of New Cities Foundation. He'll be presenting, as will Karen Philbrick, who will moderate this for me. She is the executive director of the Mineta Transportation Institute. As you know, they do lots of studies for our industry. Billy Terry will be there. He's head of the National Transit Institute that does a lot of training in our industry. And then Art Gazzetti, vice president of policy at the American Public Transportation Association, will tell us what the future looks like when it comes to the federal government's role in policy uh, in public transport. It's going to be a phenomenal panel. And then we're going to do our Transit Unplugged live CEO roundtable. I'll save that for you and tell you who some of our special guests are on that panel, some of the, the leaders in North American transit that'll be coming up soon. But this conference, if you are a public transportation executive, I encourage you to attend. Look it up, uh, Google it, go to trapezegroup.com forward slash think transit uh, and look up the executive summit. It's only $149. It's a day and a half session and it gives you access to the entire conference. Again, you don't want to miss this event. Go right now look it up, get the information, and I encourage you to register and join us there for this phenomenal session. And now we're going to uh, dig into a great interview with Christian Kent, and then we will have our leadership session presented by Sean Moon. All that. I'm so happy to bring you this great information on this week's episode of Transit Unplugged. This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged. This week, I'm excited to have with us as our newsmaker guest, Christian Kent, good friend of mine, former uh, assistant GM at Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, or as we affectionately called it, Christian didn't, but I did. We meet and talk a lot. But oh, we said it too. Oh, did you? <laughs> well, Christian and I have been friends for a long time, back into what, our 20s, Christian? Yeah. Yeah, should. back in the day when we were both working at private contracting companies and Christian worked his way up in the industry and and led uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, one of the very largest paratransit, ADA paratransit operations in the country, uh, and, and issued at the time, I believe, Christian, it was the largest single contract uh, to manage, which was $100 million. Yeah, a year, over 10 years. So it, it actually, the whole, the whole package was over a billion. That is amazing, man. And now you're in Virginia Beach, a consultant, your principal of uh, the transit management consulting company and doing very successfully. And I thought it's time to have Christian on the show because you have so much to share. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate being with you. Absolutely. Um, so today, Christian and I are going to talk about uh, recruitment challenges in the industry. Christian has got his finger on the pulse of what's happening there and has got some great solutions. Had an article published in one of our industry magazines. Also going to talk about a topic very important to me and to Christian, which is disability-friendly hiring environment. 
Uh, both of us believe very strongly in that. Christian, you were head of APTA's, um, what was the group? The Access Committee. Access Committee for many years, which you know was for our industry, the top job really uh, in overseeing what's happening with ADA paratransit across the nation. And then we're also going to talk about that, paratransit, and what is happening in our industry and how it's morphing in some places like Seattle and other places where they're looking at merging it with their overall microtransit project. Kind of like what happened at uh, Ride KC Freedom and other places around the country that are saying, hey, you know, why are we running two separate systems when they're basically very similar? So Christian's going to talk to us about that. And then the role of the private sector. So we have a, a chock full conversation uh, on our plate here. But Christian, first, I'd like you to tell us a little bit. I've told a little bit about your background, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you've done? Well, thanks, Paul. You know, I, I have to say that transit's been good to me. Um, it, this is my 35th year. I've spent about half of my career uh, in the private sector and half in the public sector. Um, I started on the private side managing paratransit and, and really got the opportunity to work directly with uh, paratransit operators, maintenance staff, trainers, uh, uh, safety, and, and very importantly, uh, the customers from the perspective of the provider. So when, uh, when we delivered service every day, I had the opportunity to get a personal report card from the people that we were <laughs> I love that. Because uh, we would go out and meet with them uh, on a monthly basis. And even frankly, on a daily basis, you know, transactionally, something, you know, something would come up and we'd go out and assist customers one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but I got to really learn the business up front that way. So then uh, a number of years managing progressively larger paratransit services, I had a wonderful, life-changing opportunity to go to uh, Washington Metro in D.C. Uh, and and uh, become the director of paratransit for, uh, for them. And at the time, you know, it was the, uh, I think it was the eighth largest paratransit system in the country when I got there. And... Uh, uh, plus or minus, it became the fifth largest because the ridership doubled in my first four years that I was there. So I have spent uh, the rest of my time in the business, not only perfecting the way we deliver service, but also trying to find a way for it to become sustainable because the demand is, is not diminishing. Uh, the population of people with disabilities continues to grow uh, at, at a pretty steep rate. Uh, and uh, uh, agencies are trying to find ways to meet that demand uh, without breaking their budget. And it's, it's, it has become a challenge. The good news is that the industry uh, has been coming up with some great solutions. And, and that's part of what we were going to talk about. That's great. And now you have a consulting business yes. here at Virginia Beach. And what do you do there? What's your uh, forte? So five years ago, I can't believe it's been five years, uh, I stepped away from my role at WMATA and came back to my hometown wanted to be close to my family, and I started my own company. Uh, and I have three lines of business. I do uh, management consulting uh, on paratransit and also, frankly, just strategic management of transit because you know, my work in paratransit gave me the opportunity to look at organizational structure and alignment, board relations, public relations. So I have a lot of agencies that'll come and ask me to address those types of issues uh, sometimes in conjunction with their paratransit concerns and sometimes not. Um, my second line of business is executive recruiting. Um, so I've been recruiting C-suite individuals uh, for uh, uh, key leadership opportunities in only transit. So transit, you know, again, being my, my favorite playground. 
Um, and then the third area is that I've been teaching uh, a course in paratransit management at the National Transit Institute. And this year, actually, we're, we're, we're going to expand that into a, a course on Title VI as well. So three different lines of business, uh, you know, a lot of interconnectivity between them. Um, the, the recruiting has become a really uh, a personally gratifying role. Uh, as you know, Paul, uh, we, we both have had to grow our own teams where we worked. And to see those individuals continue to grow until they're leading organizations is a wonderful thing. And I love seeing people uh, achieve their goals. And that's, that's part of what I, I can help them do as a recruiter. That's great, Christian. Yeah, I mean, you and I have uh, have a passion for paratransit. As you know, we both work together at uh, the Metro Access Program. I worked on the contractor side as the day-to-day director of operations, and you were on the agency side overseeing the contract. I'd like to kick off our conversation there, if you don't mind, and give us a sense of what's happening right now in the paratransit industry and where you see it going now that we're in 2023, kind of out of the pandemic. And uh, But as you said, ridership has come back. Give us a sense of where we're at and where, where we're going. Okay, so um, uh, unusual for me, I'm going to be really succinct. I'll um, mm-hmm. just tell you in a couple of places um, from the customer side, affordability of the service uh, has become an issue both in fixed route and paratransit. So a lot of systems have started to go to zero fare. Zero fare on fixed route requires that paratransit also has to be zero fare under the ADA. So when you remove what was already a small portion of covering the cost, you know, the, the fare box recovery on paratransit is 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 notoriously low, uh, you know, five to six percent at at best. Um, now it's even more difficult to pay the bill for paratransit. Um, but because of the fact that the agencies are trying to attract ridership and show, you know, their reason for being. Uh, to to the general public, they've gone zero fare in many places, and that's that's spilled over into paratransit as an issue. So the solution is that uh, rather than try to provide the same kind of paratransit with the same infrastructure and the, the same regulatory constraints, deliver service to those same customers through a different model. And so that has generated new software solutions where basically what we're doing is we're saying, to the FTA, we're going to continue to provide ADA paratransit under the regulations for anybody who wants it. We recognize that it is a civil right. We're not going to change that. However, the ADA never intended for transit agencies to deny the customer better options if they're available. Given that the ADA paratransit regs were written in 1990, and here we are in 2023, uh, you know, a lot has changed. The capabilities of the technology are different. Customer expectations are different. Customer travel patterns are different. Provider options are different. Okay. So in other words, you've got the Ubers of the world out there who are providing, uh, shared ride resources that were not there before. Um, and if an agency is judicious about it, they can say to the customer, paratransit's right here for you if you need it. And not but, but and uh, here's another array of choices that you can look at that maybe we have different providers offering and maybe it's same day service, unlike the typical paratransit service that requires a day before uh, uh, advance reservation. Maybe you're going to get better service and maybe the fare doesn't have to be high because the cost isn't as high. Right. And so now 
were absorbing the capacity uh, that was breaking the back of traditional paratransit and were giving it to people who have a, be a better model that they can accommodate those rides at a much more affordable and sustainable rate. And then we don't want to forget about fixed route either. Go back, you, know, you asked me what's changed. So here's the big one, uh, is that during COVID, when we lost ridership, people started asking the question, why are we going to run empty buses? What's going on? We're socially distancing. People are getting frustrated at that. And they're saying, you know, we're going to go, we're, we're going to leave fixed route transit and get our rides somewhere else. And so the fixed route uh, aspect of our industry is trying to get riders back. So what they've done is they've said, wherever we had fixed route buses running with lower ridership, where it doesn't justify a large vehicle, we're going to replace that service with on-demand. On-demand looks an awful lot like paratransit, right? So then what that opens the new door to is, well, if you're going to have service that's on demand, if you can make those vehicles accessible, now you have redundancy for paratransit customer access to transit because now they can use paratransit, they can use the alternative, or they can use some new hybrid on demand service that has been introduced to replace a less efficient fixed route service. So that's a lot. That is. That's great. And that's happening all over. And part of that, as you mentioned, involves uh, the public sector engaging more with the private sector. I know at where you and I used to work, I've talked to Christian Blake, uh, who came in after you, and he's doing that. I, he's taking what you set up and taking it the next step. And it has like nine or 10 different providers who are private companies, taxi cabs, other companies, and using it as a rider's choice program. So it does involve the private sector. Talk to us for a minute about the role, how the public sector can best engage the private sector um, in making sure that we serve the end customer better? Well, first of all, the public sector has to be comfortable with getting out of its own way. Mm. I think the public sector has a long perception that, that they have this, this obligation to be the provider and that you know if they're not doing that, they're not doing their job. And I think that the, the big paradigm shift in transit is that you can be a mobility integrator and not necessarily the sole provider. So if you're comfortable with that idea, meaning that you don't, you don't feel like you're going to lose funding or you're going to lose credibility by allowing others to join your network, um, you know, just having that mindset is, is probably step one. And there's a, there are a lot of good reasons to do that because if you try to do it all yourself and then you run out of funding or capacity, now you are the one person that's going to be blamed for that. And frankly, you know, the public agency should be a facilitator to say, you know, sure, we're going to provide service that's within our means, but we're also going to, uh, as we apply for grant money, we're telling the federal government that we are making use of all the local and regional resources that we can before we ask for the additional assistance that's part of our obligation uh, as, as a public agency. So we need to really embrace that, say, okay, you know, we are going to show that we're, we're being efficient. And, and that means uh, finding out what those local and regional resources are. It's actually not that hard to do. Uh, if you host uh, meetings at, uh, at your location, if you work with your MPO, um, your Metropolitan Planning Organization, um, if you work with the agencies that have um, uh, connectivity to the disability community, like Centers for Independent Living, 
but you're going to be able to find in almost you know any any uh, region. They know where the agencies are that work with the customers, but they also know the providers of specialized transportation. And if you get word out through these networks that you want to talk about collaborating to provide better service to the community, the people will come. And one of the reasons why they're going to do that is because they're going to assume that you have resources and they're going to want to say, you know, I'm a small company. I'd love more volume. I'd love to work with you. Uh, you know, are there opportunities for my small business, which I check that box as well? Um, you know, that's a wonderful opportunity to increase your capacity at a time when not only are you trying to be financially sustainable, but then that kind of introduces the subject of personnel shortage. Yes. Right. So Let's you're trying to, you're trying to find people, and then these other companies, you know, can be your overflow personnel capacity while you're trying to deal with that back at home. So um, part of the reason to engage, you're saying, with the private sector is it helps provide the overflow for folks who don't have enough of their own employees. As you know, you know, um, here in the public transit industry, we've experienced uh, the impact of the the great or the quiet resignation, whatever the right word is that people are using now. Uh, quiet and quitting. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, quiet quitting, right, exactly. Um, but but more seriously, people actually really quitting and, yes. and leaving their jobs. Uh, and so, you know, what I'm hearing from Denver to Ireland is we have all kinds of great plans we want to do in our transit system. We simply don't have the personnel to do it. Tell yeah. us some solutions that you have found that are working. Well, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm so glad you that you're giving me the chance to speak about this. I, I want to say there, there are two classes of employees that you're looking for. Um, you know, obviously, the driver is the big one. And driver recruitment has become a challenge. And yeah, I'm going to be you know fairly blunt about this. When you pay paratransit operators significantly less than you pay the fixed route operators, and they are they're they are looking at the prospect of being a driver, and they got two choices: one that pays well and one that doesn't. What you know, over time, you know, natural progression of demand. People are going to say, "I'm going to go and I'm going to get that CDL," or Maybe they're going to leave transit because, again, they're going to compare the prevailing paratransit wage with other opportunities that they have for their skill set. And they're going to say, you know what? I don't have to have a special license to go work at this company. And, you know, I can, I can increase my salary by 50% or more. I'm gone. And, and that's what people, people have been doing. So what I have recommended to, to my clients is to say, well, uh, for one thing, we need to address the economics first. How attractive is that compared to the other choices that your target market has? And you know, the second piece, of course, is you know, where are you advertising? Who are you targeting? Are you targeting the same kinds of people? If you place ads in the same place where your previous operators have always come from, and that source is drying up, maybe you are not canvassing the larger community of people such as retirees. You know, there are a lot of people who don't want to be idle after they finish a career uh, and they want to do something that's beneficial to public service. Are you out, you know, having your message reach those people as well? Um, the combination of things that you're offering, you know, are not only monetary. Then there's time off, which in the current economy, after people have had a taste of remote work during COVID, they're starting to say, am I spending enough time with my kids? 
Um, Paul, you have a few kids, I think. Um, something like you that. know, yeah, something like that, right? You know, you want to spend time with your kids. Um, and so, you know, what options does my job allow me to have work-life balance? So you want to make sure that that is that is visible uh, when you're recruiting people. You know, what is that work environment like? Um, you know, and then the other part of the workforce that that people are trying to attract are the folks that work in administrative roles in the call center and in, you know, positions, uh, you know, in the office. And this is where my article on hiring people with disabilities came in. I remember when we were first learning about the ADA and someone would inevitably raise their hand and say, well, do I have to, you know, accept an application from a person with a disability who wants to drive when we obviously know that they can't? And I'm like, well, the, the the message then and now is don't count out a person with a disability until you know that they actually can't do something. You don't decide for them. You let them come in and say, is there anything about these job requirements that would prevent you from doing it? Because with assistive technology, there are people with disabilities that perform better than some people without disabilities, and they're not being invited to the party. They're not being recruited. The companies are not sending messages that we have work opportunities right here and you'd be welcome in our company. And we would make reasonable accommodations for you because they don't really cost very much anymore uh, if they ever really did. Uh, most facilities are accessible now. It's usually some computer technology, you know, right. just, you know, whether it's, whether it's, you know, for, you know, to help with hard of hearing or, you know, whether it's it's somebody who's blind, you know, they have software that allows people to be read to, essentially, uh, and they can function just as well as someone without a disability. Um, and, and if the human resources groups at these companies also would make it clear, this job requires these abilities. So you could very easily tell a person with a disability, look, this is what the job requires. In order for you to be successful, this is what's necessary. Look this over. You tell me, you know, if you feel that you can do this, we're going to give you a shot. And the disability community is still 70% unemployed. Mm. It is a huge sleeping resource that has just been waiting to be tapped. But if you're a person with a disability and you don't feel welcome and you don't have anybody telling you, yes, our environment can accommodate you, you don't reassure them. It's the same reason why a lot of people don't use public transit with disabilities until someone tells them it's accessible. And then they say, I had no idea that there was Braille, that there was, uh, you know, talking buses, kneeling buses, uh, low floor buses, um, you know, elevators, all of the things that you need to be able to navigate transit. There are a lot of people when we do travel training who say that they had no idea that the whole point of this is. There are people out there who could fill these roles who aren't being asked. And, and so that's one of the reasons why I was saying to employers, look for, at your organization from the outside. Imagine yourself as a person with a disability who's not fully informed on all the things your company has to offer and ask yourself, would I approach this business? Wow, Christian, what a uh, round the world discussion of all these hot topics, man. Great. Well, I knew we didn't have but so much time, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but these are things that I've been really passionate about, you know, and, and the thing that's funny is that it all, it's all interconnected because when I come back to the work that I'm doing in recruiting, 
you know, the things we were discussing a moment ago about the environment of your organization, they also apply to executives. They yes. apply to employees at all levels. There are some organizations that say, you know, we just don't know why we're not getting uh, enough uh, enough interest in the jobs that we're posting. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, you're, you're not paying uh, entirely uh, enough attention to the way, way your organization is perceived. And that's very important. And so, you know, engagement starts at home, you know, asking your own workforce about their level of engagement and job satisfaction is an important thing to do, but also to be able to telegraph that you are that type of organization to external parties that might want to come and work for you. Well, Christian, thanks for providing our listeners around the world in a hundred countries, a half hour free consulting on all these hot topics. And, uh, you know, if you're listening today and you really appreciate what Christian said and you'd like to share that message more, I encourage you to do that. Like this podcast, wherever platform you're on, uh, share it with your friends and associates at work. And we'll have information about how you can contact Christian in the notes at transitunplugged.com. Christian, thank you so much for being with us today as our guest. And thank you for the 35 years you've dedicated of your career into improving people's lives through mobility. Thank you, Paul. I'd say the same for you, my friend. Thank you. Hi, I'm Alea Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. Christian Kent has been talking to Paul about building his life's career in a transit agency. The same is true for lots of transit professionals. Lauren Skyver is just one great example of someone who started her early work in transit organizations. She'll soon be COO of TransDev. When it comes to transit jobs, most of the public doesn't think beyond operator roles, but just about anyone with any skill set can find rewarding work with a transportation organization. How do we spread the word that transit agencies are such fertile ground for growing and sustaining careers? First, it's always worthwhile to work with young people to educate them about transit services. But we can augment that message to educate about transit careers. This approach has transit employees working with schools for the very youngest kids, telling them about the variety of jobs available, and bringing those people, planners and plumbers, finance folks and social media specialists, into the classroom to share their experiences. Beyond the earliest grades, transit employees can visit more focused classes. Students who are interested in literature and storytelling might be surprised to learn about transit marketing jobs. Kids who are into social sciences and economics could turn out to be great transit planners. Finally, if you aren't already, start establishing some connections with your local colleges and trade schools. Sure, connect with their career centers and jobs programs, but also consider opportunities for transit staff to visit with students more directly. If you'd like to talk more about promoting lifelong career tracks at your transit organization or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Thanks for sticking with us today on today's episode. I'm so excited to bring you an interview with Sean Moon. Sean Moon is a global leader when it comes to leadership development. He's an experienced executive and a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He's been featured in Forbes and Inc. Magazine, and he's author or co-author of several leading books on leadership. Sean, thank you so much for being with us today on the podcast. All my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm also super excited to announce today that Sean is going to be speaking exclusively at the Executive Summit at Think Transit 
in Nashville. He's going to be speaking on Monday, April 3rd. Many of you who listen to this podcast are planning to come to the Transit Unplugged podcast. He will be our afternoon speaker talking about leadership uh, and um, how to build high-performing teams, organizational transformation, how to build a culture of loyalty. It's going to be amazing high-level leadership training uh, that Sean's going to be bringing us at the Executive Summit in Nashville. I'm excited. Thank you so much for your willingness to do that, Sean. Looking forward to it. It's going to be fun to be with the team. As we prepare for that, because that'll be held on April 3rd, uh, why don't you give us a preview of what you're going to talk about there on today's uh, leadership development portion of our podcast? Uh, I guess, first off, give us a little bit about yourself and your background. I gave a little bit, but maybe you can give a little bit more. And then uh, what got you into being a, a leadership development writer and speaker? Well, this has always been a passion of mine. I had the privilege many years ago of uh, actually was still in college. Uh, getting exposed to Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who's the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, continues to be a New York Times bestselling book after, after you know, gosh, 35 plus years. It's uh, wow. amazing. And I had the privilege of working closely with him for over 25 years before he passed away. Um, we miss him. What a remarkable man. And so I had I had marvelous schooling at uh, with him and several other people uh, published authors and, and best-selling authors and thought leaders uh, had the privilege of working with executives and executive teams literally across the world on every continent. And uh, and so for me, this has just been, a, 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 I say, a labor of love, but, you know, they say if you do what you love to do, then it's, <laughs> you know, it's not work. And that's sort of how I've approached my career. I've had the privilege of being connected with a firm called Franklin Covey for uh, three and a half uh, decades. And um, uh, in various capacities, including for many years as the executive vice president. So I had opportunity to run all of the, uh, everything we owned across the world was my responsibility. Oh, wow. um, and a lot of work within the, within the government sector. I, I founded our, our government uh, services division. And so I spent a lot of time working with public sector, private sector, for-profit, not-for-profit, all in the field of how can we be more effective in our leadership? Wow, that's great. Having spent my yeah. career over 30 years in government, or in quasi-government agencies, I can tell you it's needed. <laughs> Thank you for the work you're doing there. I can remember, I'll just, with a quick anecdote, I can remember going in to see uh, my boss, the governor of our state, when I first got hired to head up the MTA, and he said, Paul, that agency really needs your help. You've really got to make some changes there. And uh, he was right. You know, big agency, 5,000 employees and contractors, you know, lots of services around. And, and Sean, I think, as you know, in the public transit world, the the CEOs of transit agencies are kind of like little mayors of their own town. I call it like, you know, they are, you know, like like Randy Clark, head of WMATA, right? Or, or Andy uh, Byford, who was head of New York MTA in Toronto. These are people that are on the radio, on TV every day. They're leading an organization uh, and they maybe don't have um, as much hands-on because half their time is spent external uh, kind of communicating like politicians do. Having been a politician, I can tell you that a lot of what you do is working for the voters. But nevertheless, their job is to not only put on the street every day on time, safe, efficient bus and rail service, but it's also to transform their agencies into becoming high performing teams. You got some tips for us on how we can do that? Uh, yes. I mean, this is, I've spent a lot of my life uh, focusing on that. And, and um, let me share with you maybe just a simple little framework that I have uh, that has been very influential in my own leadership and in working with with others. It's an inter interesting opportunity to lead in today's environment where we have so many distractions and lots of pressure on 
on hiring talent and competing for talent and and um, the, you know the economic challenges and then we throw on top of that a global pandemic and I mean what an interesting interesting time to to uh, be leader I I really believe that decades from now people will look back on this time and 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 study what we as leaders did and how we worked to to grow a high performing team and and what we're trying to do every day so four simple things that I have found are really critical and frankly are at the core are at the heart of any high performing team and you'll hear these and you think well yeah of course um but i'm i'm telling you i'm i'm not sure it's fair to say that, that these things are always in place i'm just telling you in my three and a half decades of working with executives across the world i've never seen a, a high performing team happen where these haven't been in place okay so the first one easy to say hard to do and that is that we have a deliberate intention to do just what we talk, we're talking about. Where leaders say, I intend, I deliberately intend to build this high-performing team, a culture uh, where people feel like they can contribute their very finest talent and, and capability. That always has to come from the top, where the senior leader, he or she says, this is important to me, and we allocate time and resources to make it happen. In my experience, Paul, uh, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, I have in fact, I, I encourage any leader out there, any leader, to uh, to find an annual report of any organization anywhere where they don't say something to this effect, that our people are our most important resource. Because everybody says it, but so few really do anything about it. So point number one, you got to be intentional about it. You got to be deliberate. You, you have to say, this matters to me. Point number two, I'll do this quickly. There's got to be some kind of organizing model or framework to help us actually get get the work done. And, and so that's what my career has been about is, is implementing frameworks to help us accomplish, uh, you know, some kind of cultural uh, improvement or high performance. That frame number three has to introduce language, process, tool, vocabulary, so that when you and I are talking, we're speaking the same language. And finally, and this is so critical, no high performance team comes without the leader himself or herself first being a model of all that we're talking about, right? We as leaders, have to lead out. We have to model the behavior that we're seeking on our team. And we've all had experiences where the leader has stood up in front of our team and said, all right, everybody behave this way. But then he or she actually behaves this way. And you know the cataclysmic impact that can have when we don't model the behavior. So simply those four things. We've got to have the deliberate intention, the, the, the institutional will. And it's got to start at the top. Number two, it's got to introduce a framework, some kind of organizing model. Number three, that represents language, vocabulary, school skills, tool, process. And number four, we've got to be models personally of what we're asking the rest of the team to do. There's so many things that are part of this, Paul, but, but really for me, that's the framework that I begin with. Let me ask you a question from personal experience, following up on, you know, kind of um, be the man or the woman that you want others to be, so to speak. Yeah. What happens when you've got, or maybe some thoughts on this, when you've got a leader who says, you know, look, I don't want yes people. I don't want yes men standing around me telling me yes, yes, yes. But then when you stand up to them in private or in a meeting when they ask you to and you give them your honest feedback and then you have reprisals, I mean, I guess you should just be wise and not do that. And Or, or how do you, how would you approach that as a, as a leadership trainer? Uh, I think you, you, you have to be candid um, and, and be direct. And if you don't have the ability to do that, it really strikes at the core, I think, of maybe a, a root cause problem. And that is, do you have, as you look at this high-performing discussion we've been having, is it all founded on a, a culture, a foundation of trust? 
right? And the ability to create a culture of trust is so imperative for those kinds of discussions. And so take your example. Uh, if you have a low trust environment, that discussion and any discussion, I mean, think about think about just an environment where you might've worked in your career where trust was not just low. Let's say it was toxically low, like toxically low. Yeah, I've been there. What is it like to have the simplest of conversations in that kind of environment? Not the yeah. hardest, the simplest. Right. Careful Flip about everything around. you say. Yeah. <laughs> everything you say. There's ulterior motives ascribed to everything you say and do, right? Um, it is painful. I often ask people, what does it feel like? And, and they'll share with me words like, oh man, it was oppressive. And are you willing to, to volunteer your finest effort? Well, I don't know. Do you feel safe in that environment? No, not really. What's it like to solve the simplest of problems? And it's just, it's like feeling like you're banging your head against a brick wall. Now flip it around. Think about a time where you've worked in an environment where trust is not just good, but it's extraordinary. It's world-class. And what does it feel like to solve even the most difficult, challenging problems? And the answer I get back is often bring it on. Yeah. Because right? we've yeah. done it before. We can do it because we know we can be candid with each other. We can be direct with each other. I've got your back. You've got my back. We have loyalty. We exhibit all the principles and behaviors of trust. There's almost nothing we can't do. Um, I know that in future uh, discussions, you're going to uh, uh, talk with my good friend and, and, and colleague, Stephen M. R. Covey, who is the author of The Speed of Trust. What a powerful frame that work that is. And we talked about a framework. That's That, for me, is is the key framework for doing this. If you don't have trust, you don't have anything. And you're right. Stephen and I will be talking about that trust thing, too. So one last question I have for you is tell me a little bit, build on what we've talked about so far, about building a culture of loyalty in your organization. Yeah, and I I wrote a book recently called Leading Loyalty, and it's how how we how we go about doing all of that. We um, uh, we often when we think of loyalty, we think of external customers, um, and that's a good way of thinking about it. We also need to think about the people we associate with every day, those we're sitting by and and working with. So I define loyalty, customer loyalty, both internal and external. Really, there's three core principles for me. I think of a principle like a natural law, like the like the principle of gravity. To step off a building, you're going to fall. If I don't agree with that, and I step off a building, I'm still going to fall because it just acts right. It just independently, whether I like it or recognize it or not, it acts. And there are three principles associated with customer loyalty. The principle, first of all, of empathy. Almost every leadership development process will will talk about empathy, and the reasons are because it is such a foundational leadership behavior and competency to see the world uh, through another person's eyes to you know the old well-worn phrase to walk a mile in someone else's shoes but how powerful that is and think about in your life when you have encountered a leader who is good at that the difference that makes maybe versus a leader who doesn't right and and how the sense of loyalty that you feel that's the first principle the second principle is do i exhibit everyday responsibility do I own problems? Do I do, does my team? If we're trying to create a culture of this as a team and as individuals on the team, do we own the problems and take responsibility to solve them? And finally, the third principle, and I talk about this in the book, Leading Loyalty: Do we exhibit regularly and consistently a generous heart? Do we surprise occasionally with the unexpected extras? Do we look for ways to to uh, to bless people's lives uh, in ways that, that they may not? normally expect or maybe just go outside the system. When we consistently demonstrate those principles through our behaviors, we will start to see the needle move on on the loyalty. 
there's all kinds of statistics that, that talk about loyalty in an organization, uh, organizational context. And uh, the numbers are actually kind of um, startling. Uh, for example, uh, just over a third of people today in any organization, in any industry. So this is a broad study, but hopes to be working for someone else a year from now, right? That's one. Here's another data point. People are not just dissatisfied, but they, they are extremely dissatisfied, about a third of our employees. And if you think about who in the demographic, it is so often the frontline people on our teams, right? Those people who are the least paid, the least trained, who have the highest turnover. And yet there's an Oracle study that shows that 70% of how your organization is perceived is driven by that frontline group. So think about all the time and effort, money and resource that goes in to have, having your organization be perceived in a certain way. And yet, if we don't demonstrate these principles of loyalty, then it's those people who touch the customers on an everyday basis who will erode it. So as leaders, again, going back to how we lead out, that, that really is the key. Wonderful. Hey, listen, if you like what you're hearing from Sean Moon, author, I encourage you to check out his book, which is Leading Loyalty, Cracking the Code to Customer Devotion, and a number of other books he has. Can people get those on Amazon, Sean? Yes, they can. All right, very good. And if you want to hear Sean in person, um, register today for the Think Transit Executive Summit 2023 being held April 3rd and 4th in Nashville, Tennessee, a great fun city. Sean will be speaking exclusively to the Executive Summit, people who are C-suite executives or senior leaders in their transit agencies in Canada and the U.S. on Monday afternoon that day. And you can register um, on the show notes here of today's episode. Sean, thank you so much for sharing with us just a few tidbits about how folks can improve their own personal brand and improve the loyalty they have to their organization. Paul, thank you so much for this opportunity. I hope I get to see uh, many of you on the 3rd of April. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views with our special guests, Christian Kent and Sean Moon. Now, coming up next week is another special episode of Transit Unplugged. We have none other than Stephen M. R. Covey of Franklin Covey talking with Paul about leadership and building trust within your organization. I've been listening to this episode for a week now, and every time I hear it, I learn something new. Absolutely fantastic. Don't miss it. In the meantime, make sure you're always in the loop. Visit transitunplugged.com. Sign up for the newsletter. Now, if you need to email us, feel free to at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Transit Unplugged, the podcast. How would you like to see behind-the-scenes footage of the agencies that Paul visits? then be sure to check out the new Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube, where transit evangelist Paul Comfort dives into the culture, the food, and the transit of major cities around the world. You'll see the operations control centers, how maintenance shops work, and the latest innovations taking place at agencies around the globe as we work together to improve the lives of our transit riders and our communities. Be sure to subscribe to Transit Unplugged TV on YouTube or at transitunplugged.com.